0: announcements things are going on but there's a tab down there that says generosity feeds by show of hand who here has either helped pack meals for generosity feeds or you've given funds towards it in the past See, so yeah i've been part of that last fall we were ready we had all the dollars raised we were ready to go and we had almost all the people who were volunteering signed up and we had to back it up because of the pandemic Well, we backed it up, and so the new date is coming right there, May 15th, and this fellow right over here, Daryl, step a little closer in the light so we can see you. This is Daryl White. Daryl is the leader of this ministry, and he would love to chat with you and tell you more because I'm not sure what Generosity Feeds is. Basically, we pack meals that stay here in Fayette County. Our goal is to do 10,000 meals, and they'll go to families that have need. And so that is coming. I want you to click on that link that's on, the, on, the, on your phone that says Generosity Feeds. That's where you can sign up today. You can open that up. Boom, you can sign up. There's two waves on that Saturday, a morning and an afternoon. So we still can practice social distancing, keep the crowds down smaller. So click that and sign up. I'm so excited because as we're coming out of this pandemic, ministry is gearing up. The other thing that's coming soon is Kids Camp. Kids Camp, we're going to be doing that this summer. Last summer, we had to back it off because of the pandemic. But we're going to try something different this year. In the past, we've done it five weeks in a row. We're going to do it five days in a row. And we need adult volunteers. And we need junior high and high schoolers to volunteer and help out. It takes me, we have no idea how many kids will come. It may be, hey, the pandemic's nearing the end. And every parent's like, get my kid into something, get them out there. We may have 150 kids. It might be, well, we're still holding back. We're not sure. And we have 40 kids. We're not sure. Typically, in the past, we've had about 100 kids a 10 kids camp. And so it takes a lot of helpers, and so I want to encourage you to sign up. Again, on this, on your phone, there's things that's Kids Camp. You can click it and learn more info. You can sign up to volunteer. That is coming very soon. We will start the registration for Kids Camp here in the coming weeks in May. And so I just encourage you to do that. Um, so excited as ministry is going to come back around just as everything else is. And we want to be able to love our community and help people find and follow Jesus. Let's pray, and we're going to jump into God's Word together. Lord God, we ask for you to speak in this room. God, we're going to open up your scriptures, and we're going to study them together. And God, sometimes we open the scriptures, it can be challenging. And today's, some of the passages and the past we've been dealing with, some challenge comes to us. It, it pushes against sometimes our, our thinking. It pushes against sometimes our history or our traditions. And God, I pray that you would help us to be open to receive your word, to to hear it, to receive it, and then to submit to your teachings and to be willing to be doers of your scriptures and to live them out, even when they don't align with our own personal thinking, that we would say, all right, Lord, I see your scripture and I'm gonna do it. So God, would you teach in this room? Would you speak in this room? Would you uh, bring forth your word in this room through the power of your Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This year we've been walking through the letter of Romans that I've titled Romans, The Greatest Letter of Good News. And it is good news. It's not just good news, it's tremendous news. It's great news. And as we continue to walk through Romans, we're going to see more and more why this is good news. It's all about what is the gospel And how does the gospel change us? It's about what does it look like when a person understands the gospel, intersects with it, lives their life with it. How does that make our lives be different? I'm not talking about the gospels like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's known as the gospels. I'm talking about the gospel, understanding who Jesus is, his death, his burial, and resurrection, and what that means for our relationship with him. When we understand that, Life changes greatly. We're in chapter two and we're going to begin chapter three. Can I get an amen? All right, we're going to start into chapter three today because we're moving along. I think this is message number eight. I told you this is where this we're going to be at basically the entire year. We're going to live in the book of Romans, understanding the wrath of God. Now, we talk about the wrath of God, and many times, like, I don't really want to talk about the wrath of God have a hard time understanding the wrath of God. Why do we got to talk about it? We must understand the bad news in order to fully appreciate the good news. And so we have to spend time talking about this. Now, if you've missed any of the messages in the series, because today I'm going mean, to talk about some stuff, you're like, now how does that connect back to earlier in 2 and chapter 1? Go to mycpoint.com. That's our website, forward slash Romans. You'll be able to find the sermons there. You'll be able to find growth guides. If you're in a small group, a growth group, a men's group, women's group, you can download your growth guide right there. You can print it off. You're not in a group and you're like, I just want some additional study. Download the growth guide. And you can then um, have your own personal study guide. There's also some great videos we put on there. There's three videos that are about eight minutes long each that really give you a good overview of Romans. So as you're going through this, you're like, okay, Brian, you're preaching. I'm trying to connect the dots. And trust me, understand Romans is not an easy book. And I'm trying to connect the dots. And I've been to Bible college and I'm struggling going, how do I do this? And there's a lot of study that goes into this, to these messages. And so go there and check out those videos. There's great tools there. Here's what I know to be true. We're guilty in the church of minimizing the wrath of God. We're guilty of not really talking about it much. We've become where we talk about God's love but we don't necessarily want to talk about God's wrath because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want someone to you know, feel like all you do is preach fire and brimstone type mind. And so even within Bible-believing churches across our nation, churches that, that teach the Word of God, you'll hear a lot of messages about God's love, maybe messages about marriage, maybe messages about how to read God's Word, messages about the Holy Spirit. You, you'll hear all those kind of messages, But you're not going to hear many about the wrath of God. matter of fact, Brian and I were driving down the road yesterday, was it yesterday, Friday, coming back from seeing Luke in Louisville, and I said, do you ever notice how there's no songs that sing about the wrath of God? (laughs) Could you imagine? I mean, we're listening along, and we're listening to our worship music, and they're all about God loves me and everything. And I was thinking, what would it be like? Could you imagine coming to the church and just singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Turn to him or go to hell. <laughs> I bet people won't come to church. And you all would be like, especially if you're the worship leader, not in that tune. I mean, it would be bad. But there's no songs that like, like, like to bring you And we wouldn't want to sing about it. We'd, even if it wasn't, we be like, yeah, Jesus loves me. This I know. Let's get that next section and go to on later. We just wouldn't want to do it. See, as as Christians, as followers of God, we are to be prepared to give an answer for the faith that we have. We are to be prepared to give an answer to the unbeliever who says, why do you believe that? And we are to be prepared to give an answer to a friend, a brother and sister in Christ who says, I don't understand this. Can you help me? So if they are reading through Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and they're hearing about the wrath of God and they come to you and say, I've got some questions. Are we as Christians, because that's part of our calling, are we able to give an answer? And the answer can't just be Jesus. That's a Sunday school answer. That's what kids do. They, what's the answer? Jesus, read your Bible. Jesus, read your Bible. Jesus, read your... No, 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 no. We've got to think more than that. So today we're going to be challenged to think a little bit. Today I'm going to challenge you to go go a little deeper. Because Jesus comes to save, but what does he come to save us from? You tell someone Jesus came to save you. What's he he saving you from? Are you willing to save Well, he's coming to save you from eternity in hell. By the wrath of God. Wait a minute. You going to talk about that? Yeah. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Love and wrath coexisting in the same verse, but we say God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. He does, but also, if you don't respond to his love and accept his forgiveness, then there's wrath. There's the side of perish. They coexist. That's God's character. They can live in in one. It's like a mom and dad who loves their child but can still give them a little spank on their rear end. When they need it, now let's say spanking church, sorry. I didn't say that. Erase that. Take it off Facebook. Correct your child. You guys know what I'm talking about. Come on, I don't need to go any further. All of us needed it. It worked for me. Trust me, it did. Oh, okay, I'm getting sidetracked. Okay, chapter three of Romans. Paul, in the first three chapters of Romans, breaks down four different groups of people. We've already covered the depraved Gentile society, the people who are outside the church, the people who have that mindset that life is a party, eat, drink, and be merry. They're not sure about God uh, and not sure that God really affects their life, and they're not really concerned about it. Let's just go on and have a a party because that's what life is. Earlier in chapter 2, we talk about the moralist. Paul talks about the moralist. The person who says, I try to be a good person. I do a lot of good stuff. I, I, I'm better than a lot of other people. Matter of fact, God, if you just look at all my good lists and look at their good lists, I've way outdone them. That's the moralist mindset. In the end, we hope that our scales lean towards the favor of God. Paul says, that, that doesn't work. Today, we get into this idea of the self-confident Jewish person. Now, many in this room right now, you may be thinking, I'm not Jewish. Whew. This text doesn't really apply to me very much. Let me stop you. Yes, he's talking directly to the Jewish person, but there's a lot of uh, extensions of the scripture here that tie into us right here in 2021 because the Jewish person was known as the religious person. And so in our text, when Paul says Jewish, just put in the word religious. The person who thinks they're religious, the person who who, who thinks I've got it figured out. At the heart of today's passage, we're going to get to what does it mean to be a Christian and what damage is done if I embrace a certain form of rules instead of a relationship, thinking the rules will get me to heaven. So Paul says, let's look at this, church. Let's look at this, those who are Jews. Let's look at this, those who are religious. And then next week, we'll jump in this idea of the whole human race, kind of like if Paul didn't already cover it in the Gentiles and in the moralist and in those who are the religious mindset, Paul says, let me just kind of tie a bow on it, and we'll do that next week, and then we'll move on past maybe the wrath of God for a little while. But as you go through Romans, you're always going to filter in a little bit of the wrath of God to understand the goodness of God. So let's jump into Romans 2. We have a lot of ground to cover. I'll try to move quickly, but I'm just going to prepare you. We're going to dig in today a little bit longer today. Romans chapter 2, verse 17 but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He's setting the stage for who he's talking to. Paul's like, if you call yourself a Jew, You might be from a a Jewish background. Paul's saying if you call yourself religious, if you call yourself spiritual, if you rely upon the law or you rely upon some holy text, you boast in God and you say, I know God. I'm right with God. You have, I I have it all figured out, God. I read the rules and I'm following them. If you think spirituality and religiosity, you line up with it and you're saying, all right, I've got it all figured out. Paul's saying, I'm talking to you. So, sir, so some in this room. You may say, yeah, I've got my rules. I was raised with certain rules. I go to church. I don't swear. I don't drink. I make sure I'm in Sunday school. I make sure that, you know, I'm good to the people I'm, I'm around. I serve others. I give my money to the poor. I make sure I give some offering. You have your rules. Paul's saying, in this description, is for you, and the wrath of God is coming for you. The wrath of God is coming for you. Just imagine this letter being read to a Jewish crowd. Because that's what would have happened. The letter is sent. Paul never went to Rome, so he sends the letter. And they would have gathered in a gathering similar like this. they say, hey, we got a letter from Paul, let's read it. And they would have read it out loud, just as I'm reading it to you out loud. I don't know if there would have been much explanation besides they just would have read it. And in that room would have been mostly a Jewish culture and probably a few Gentiles and a few others um, who were sitting there. People in that crowd, you know what they start saying? Amen. Imagine yourself being a teacher. I do do call myself a Jew. I do rely upon the law. Amen, Paul, you're preaching now. I like this letter. Good stuff. Yeah, I boast in the law. Yeah, I'm a guide to the blind. I let people know how to follow the law. I teach Sunday school. Paul, you're on fire. Let's tweet that. Oh, put it out there on Instagram. Put some fire emojis behind it too. Because Paul is lighting it up right now. That's what would be going on as they're reading the letter. They're thinking, this is great stuff. And then Paul turns the tables. You then, verse 21, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? Paul throws out five rhetorical questions. And is pointing out the religious ritual. He's saying, you who have rules and rituals, are you sure this is how you want your relationship with God to be? Are you sure you want to follow all these rules and rituals? You think your rules make you secure in heaven? You want to clothe yourself in religious rituals? See, whenever someone is relying on religious rituals, hypocrisy is not far behind. And Paul's saying, you better check yourself you better stop and check yourself because you cannot say you line up to all these religious rituals and bat a 1,000% perfectly. Did you lie? Paul said, have you stolen? Have you thought about uh, the opposite sex in the wrong way? Have you entered into immoral relationships? Have you done this? Have you done that? Paul's like, if you're looking at all that and you're saying, I've got it, but you've done any of that, you're not batting 1,000%. You're in trouble. The wrath of God is coming after you. Is that how you want your relationship? I don't, because if you know the darkness of my heart and where I mess up and blow it, boy, I'd be destined for hell. And probably most in this room would, if not, let's say, all of us, right? The enemy is always trying to twist the scriptures. He's always trying to twist God's plan. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. We are trying to connect new ways concoct new ways to connect with God you go back to the Old Testament and you go to the Tower of Babel and they're building a tower saying I'll build this tower as we get to- closer to God, they will make us close to God and he says you don't get it and he confused their languages personally that's why I believe foreign language in our world because they're like if they can't speak the same language they can't work together New ways to measure up to God's standard. And the enemy is always trying to redefine the standard. It even happens among people who take the name of Christ. For instance, think about this with me for a minute. Maybe God stirs in your heart and mind, and you decide, I want to do some evangelism. And you decide the way I want to do evangelism is I'm going to go do some door-to-door knocking. And you're going to go knock on some doors and you're going to ask people about their relationship with Jesus and are they Christian. If you go here in central Kentucky and you go to your first door, they may not answer because some don't answer the door. But once you get someone to answer the door, imagine you have a little small talk and you say, hey, after the small talk, hey, can I ask you a question? Sure, what question do I ask? Are you a Christian? Well, yeah, I'm a Baptist. I didn't ask you if you're a Baptist. I asked you if you're a Christian. No, I mean, I'm Southern Baptist, born and raised. Grandma's a Baptist. My aunt's a Baptist. My uncle's a Baptist. My mommy's a Baptist. My dad's a Baptist. I was raised in a Baptist. I'm a Baptist. I didn't ask you if you're a Baptist. Oh, okay. And you move to door number two. You knock on the door. You have a little small talk. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Hey, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, I'm a Methodist. I didn't ask you if you're a Methodist. I asked you if you're a Christian. No, man, I was born and, born and bred Methodist. I was baptized when I was a baby. I went through the catechism classes. I did it all. And grandma's a Methodist and grandpa's a Methodist, my dad's a Methodist. We're Methodist. Okay, that's not what I was asking. You go to door number three. Knock on the door. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Sure, what's your question? Are you a Christian? Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. Oh, I didn't ask you if you're a Catholic, I asked you if you're a Christian. Well, I went to catechism. My mom was a Catholic. My grandpa's a Catholic. Everybody in my family, we're Catholics. That's what we are. See, what happens is the label gets out in front of their affiliation of their relationship with the name of Jesus. Please, if somebody asks you, are you a Christian? Do not respond with, well, yeah, I go to Centerpoint Christian Church. That doesn't make you a Christian. Your response should be, yeah, I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus, his death, his burial, and resurrection. I've submitted my life to him. I worship at center point with a whole bunch of other people who believe the same thing. Religious ritual wants to prop up our understanding before God. We want to prop ourselves up by saying, God, look at me. Look at the things I do. Look at me. And you fill in the blank. I do. I, I pack meals for generosity feed God. I signed up for kids' camp there talking about God. God, I did a small group thing they talk about. God, I was there, you know, at least you know 50% of the time. There's nothing wrong with being a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Catholic or a Christian church purpose person or going to center point as long as you're clinging to the title of Jesus. Now, we could debate. I could debate with the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Catholics on their theology and why they do things, but if people are clinging to their salvation in Jesus, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I do the sacraments. I I make sure I pay communion every week. I grab that little plastic thing even though it's annoying to take and tear a little lid off, but I do it. I'm faithful to Mass. I'm faithful to church on Sunday. You know, for me... When I was growing up, now, the purpose was not to teach a form of religion, but that's what it does. When I grew up, they gave us rewards if you made 52 Sundays out of 52 Sundays. They did. And some of you all are like, yeah, I remember that. They gave us rewards if you memorized scripture. And then some years later, there was a book that came out that said, Punished by Rewards. And I think that can happen. We have an intent of trying to create a good habit, but the habit then becomes a ritual, and we think, "As I do the ritual, I'm right with God." Are you a Christian? See, ritual has then been confused with the relationship with the living God, and we substituted ritual for relationship to say, "Look what I do," or "Look what I have done," or "Look what I am doing." Are you a Christian? Do you know Jesus? Has God transformed your heart from the inside out? Religious ritual wants us subvert and change so we can prop ourselves up before God and say, God, look at my goodness for my salvation. We have a religious litmus test for what makes us acceptable to living God. And Paul says, what that does is it creates hypocrisy. It creates a lot of hypocrisy in the human heart and all of us fall short. In our text today, Paul is talking about the damage of religious hypocrisy. And his first point is that hypocrisy brings God's wrath because it discredits God's name. It creates and it defames and it does massive damage to the name of God when we have all these rules that create hypocrisy. Look at verse 24. For as it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You who? You religionist. You rule follower. You ritual keeper. The person who says, you know what you need to do? You need mass. You need sacraments. You need to be faithful to the church. You need to give. You need to do, 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 do. Instead of accepting what's been done. And Paul is coming after that group of people. But under the service of this, your life there's no reality to it. The cart has gotten before the, before the horse. You should do some of these things, but you should do them for the right reasons. For instance, baptism. We love baptism here. That's why we have a baptistry right here, and it's filled with water every single Sunday, and it's heated up most Sundays, unless I forget to turn it on, but it's heated. It's about 100. And, it's probably went down a little, bit, about 105 degrees. If you want to get baptized, I'd love to help you because it's nice and warm. We love baptism. It's a command in Scripture. It's something that you should do. But when baptism gets before the relationship with God, it's a problem because it just becomes a ritual. Then what we begin to do is tell people, if you have enough ritual in your life, then you can get right with God. And we look back and say, well, that was a marking period in my life, and that's when I got right with God. See, the only way... The only way to come to the Father is through Jesus Christ the Son. Period. Period. That's it. Now, there are some things that the Lord tells us to do that I believe if we're being obedient Christ followers, we would do them. Baptism is being one of those. There's no other way. Paul is saying, when you do this, it discredits the name of Jesus. We must always encourage relationship and not religious ritual. Paul moves on. Secondly, he says, religious hypocrisy Brings God's wrath because it disregards God's applause. Look at verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. What is he talking about and where did this come from? Let me just say this to you. Do not ever pull this text out and use it as a reason to say, this is why I should have my baby circumcised. That's not what this is talking about. Y'all chuckle. I've been in ministry for 28 years, and I have heard that on numerous times. Well, I'm supposed to have my baby circumcised. This is what it says. I even got an email about this week, someone asked me about that, Say, how are you going to teach this? And I assured the person who emailed me and said, listen, that's not what this text teaches. He's hitting home how you have a relationship with God. Circumcision is a covenant sign that God made with Abraham. God appeared to, to him and God said, I'm going to make a covenant with my people, a relational living covenant. Covenant with you. And he comes to Abraham and he says the sign of that covenant is going to be circumcision. You will take this sign and through this you'll be known as my people, the Jews, the nation of Israel. But what happened is over time, the ritual got out in front of the relationship. The, the sign of the covenant got out in front of the, in front of the covenant. And, and what happens, it, it's kind of, you know, a covenant is, a, is an agreement. It's like in marriage, you, you sign a holy covenant when you enter into marriage. And this is a holy covenant, but it's a covenant made in love. What was important to the Jews has now become a cultural identity or has become part of their heritage. What's important? I'm circumcised. I'm part of the family. I'm part of the Jews. I was raised Baptist, so I'm Baptist. I was raised Catholic, so I'm Catholic. Well, I've been through that circumcision thing, so I'm part of the Jewish-Israel family. As opposed to actually living like a child of God. And Paul's like, I don't care what your markings are and what things you went through. Paul says when that happens, circumcision doesn't mean anything anymore. Now it's just a religious ritual. You took something beautiful that God created and you tried to dress it up into your own actions and you disfigured it and you you maimed it. And not the same anymore. You created it in your own image and you created something that he didn't create. You put berries in front of the relationship with God and this keeps people from understanding the relationship with God. And Paul's trying to blow all this thinking up. Paul says, if you do that, circumcision doesn't amount to anything anymore. In fact, he goes as far to say, God will raise up outside of Israel people who will sit in judgment over you. You realize this? In the same way, he would say the religious ritualists in this room. And you may be thinking, Brian, that's not me. Stop. I think all of us have some religious ritualism in us. All of us have some judgment where we say, well, that person's probably not quite as good. They're they're not a strong Christian. If they were truly a Christian, say, I didn't do that. Wait a minute. Let's just think back to election last year. If you're truly a Christian, you would have voted this way. If you're truly a Christian, you would have voted this way. You just became a religious ritualist. You got me? Paul's saying, addressing us, and so he would say to us, baptism? going to the water, you go to baptism? Super important. But if you get baptized so that everyone sees you and you see you and you can say, I was baptized, I'm right with God, you just made it a ritual. I was 11 years old. If I lean back on that when I was 11, I went to that watery grave. So I know that's what makes me right before God because I did the act. Paul would say, then your baptism really isn't baptism. Yeah. Baptism made a ritual for the purpose of measuring up to God's righteousness. Holy and perfect standard is not what God is asking for at all. God has not commanded you to be baptized so that you can be right with him. You, be, you get baptized because you believe him, because you, you put your trust in him, because you put your faith in him, because you want to follow his command, because you trust the word of God, and because you want to do what God asked you to do. Baptism is a picture of uniting with Christ. Baptism is being buried in my old life, rising anew, just as Christ rise from the grave. And you're saying, I want to do what Christ did, but I'm not doing it to earn it. I do it because I love him so much. I want to follow his command. See, in your baptism, you're saying... It's not about what I'm doing. It's about what he's done for me. I'm accepting it. I'm believing that. Paul says the reason hypocrisy invades religious ritualism is that it misses the heart. It pretends that God cares about all the ritual activity, even if there's an absence of anything supporting its authenticity. It's a pretender is what it is. Look at verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Do you know what Paul's talking about here? Paul's talking about a heart issue. He says his praise is not from man, but from God. What praise? The the person who really gets this the person who really understands it, the person who understands that my relationship with God is not about what I do. It's not based on a set of rules. They don't put anything else in front of the relationship with God. The person who really gets, uh, gets this and understands it and tries to live that way, not to be seen as righteous before God because of what they do, but just trusting God for the relationship and doing this, and they do it because I love God. Paul's saying, listen, when, they, when God sees their heart, he sees that no one else can do, and Paul is saying that God gives you praise. Wow. Wow. We praise God, and He says, "Wait, well, God will praise you back." When we live in a relationship and not in a ritualistic, rules, religion-bound type relationship, what Paul is saying is the religionists, the ritualist, instead of doing whatever they do out of the overflow of their heart, they are doing it in opposition of their heart, in opposition, and the heart is not in it. Think about this for me with me for a minute. Someone asks you, or let's say you and I had a conversation. You go to church? Yeah, I go to church. Good for you. Is your heart in it? Mm, Not really. Maybe you should buy a boat. Why should I buy a boat? If I buy a boat, then I'll be on the lake, and then I won't be in church, and God will be mad at me. No, he's probably already kind of upset at you. You're already under his wrath. Why? Because you think going to church makes God happy. You know what makes God happy? Somebody going to church because they love him so much and their heart has been so transformed and they just want to be with him and his people. That Saturday night when you're winding down for the day, you're thinking, i got to get to bed. i got to get up. i got to be ready to go. I can't wait to get in church tomorrow because I get to see God, spend time with God, and see my friends and my family and my church, and it's so encouraging, and I love it. And God says, that makes me happy. If you're here today because you thought this is what you're supposed to do, if you're here today because your spouse drug you Husband, you need some Jesus in your life. (laughs) Honey, you've been awful cranky lately. Let's go to church. Son, you're getting to church. Teenagers, I understand. Some of you are like, I'm here because my mom and dad made me. My mom and dad made me too, and I'm thankful they did. Because I started to learn over time. And sometimes it does take that. It takes someone dragging you. It takes someone saying, you need to be doing this. But you, the idea is that you would grow to the point that you want to be here. I don't believe you're here by accident. And someone this week said, Brian, you use that phrase all the time. You say you're not here by accident. I'm glad that that person recognized I use that term because I don't think you're here today by accident. Rather, you were drugged here kicking and screaming. When I was a teenager, my mom would come and wake us up. Hey, you're going to go to church. I'm not going to church today, mom. I was about 15 years old. I was six foot five, 220 pounds. It's 15. My mom said, You're going to church. I'll be back in five minutes. She'd come in five minutes. She'd say, You're going to church. I, I'm not going to church. She'd come back with a glass of water. You have a choice get out of bed and you're going to church, or this is going in your face. It happened. Get yourself out of bed. And then you get out of bed because if I didn't obey my mom, then my dad was coming in with the belt. So there's times when you're drug and you may have been drugged here because your spouse drugged you, your mom and dad drug you, but it's not an accident because he wants you in this place to hear this message. He wants you to hear that this should be the last Sunday you're bored or miserable in church. You should let him, allow him to transform your heart. He's not giving you a pass to go hang out on the lake. Don't walk out of here and say, hey, honey, the preacher said, let's buy a boat. <laughs> don't, get, don't get that out of this message. That's not what I'm telling you. He's telling you, I want to transform your heart from the inside out so you don't have to play the game anymore. You don't have to play the game because God's not playing. God is serious. He loves you. He cares for you. He stands in total opposition for you to try to earn your salvation through any other means but through the cross of Christ and Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me it's not a game folks that we play and if anything the pandemic should wake us up that this is not a game because this pandemic is actually spoken of basically in scripture that there will be wars and rumors of wars and sickness and all kinds of trials and tribulations and difficulties and i trust you it's going to get worse Say, now, well, wait a minute, you're already giving us bad news. No, the scripture tells us it's going to get worse before Jesus returns. And the question is, are we going to draw into Jesus and say, I'm going to trust you for my strength and trust you for my salvation? See, if you do all the other things, giving and serving in Bible and study group, and you're doing it to earn God's salvation. Paul's saying it's dead, it's lifeless. It's useless, and he wants to transform a dead heart, a brittle heart. And when he does that, and he makes your heart alive, and you see the significance and the beauty for the first time, you'll be like, I I can't wait to go to worship. I'm going to bring some other people with me. I can't wait for Bible study. I'm ready to do it. When we sing and a a worship leader says, lift your hand, I'm going to lift my hand. I don't care who's around me. I'm going to lift my voice to God. And when a preacher's preaching, I'm going to be with them. And I'm going to make it a priority in my life. I'm not going to set the priority aside because I love the Lord so much. Let me step into another realm just a little bit. I love the Lord so much that everything else gets in line behind it. I won't skip church to be at the lake. I won't skip church to be at the baseball game. I won't skip church to take my kid to the soccer game. I'll start telling all these things of this world. You wait until I'm done worshiping with my family. But it's going the other way. We love our sports so much that that's become our idols. We love our jobs so much that's become our idols. But when we love the Lord so much, we say, "Lord, I can set all other stuff aside and it can wait." Changes everything about us. Here's what happens: the kind of authenticity that will take place when the Lord transforms your heart from the inside out becomes attractive. People you interact with will say, "What's going on with you? You're different." Why do you think that way? Why do you behave that way? And you'll be able to say, the Lord has transformed my mind and my heart. I am a new creation in Christ, and i love to tell you about them. And then people want what we have. And if that happened in Centerpoint Christian Church, and it happened at the Baptist Church down the road, and the Methodist Church down the road, and the Catholic Church down the road, all of a sudden churches would start to get soul-filled again, we wouldn't have enough room for the people in our city to come and gather and worship. God's waiting for us to get real. He's waiting for us to become authentic. When you say, I'm doing it for, I'm doing it for my mom, I'm doing it for my dad, doing it for a coworker, doing it for a friend, doing it for my girlfriend, I'll go to church for my girlfriend. Got to earn her love, right? When you start saying that, I'm not doing it for anything but his praise. When that becomes your mind, I'm not going to do it for anything but his praise, then religious ritual goes out the wayside goes out the door. Religious ritual makes it about what people see. Relationship with God is all about what God sees, and God sees the heart. God sees your heart, and God wants your heart. Now, Paul knows what's going to happen. Paul knows as he's writing this letter, he knows, okay, I'm going to lay this down. Why does he know it? Because the Holy Spirit's inspiring him to write these words, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He knows it, and Paul knows that the Jewish and religious elite, those who are familiar with ritual, they're going to feel backed in a corner. And as they get backed up in a corner, as Paul is writing his letter, and they're reading this and they're like, this goes against everything we've been taught. They're going to keep backing up in a corner. And you know what happens when you get backed up in a corner far enough? What happens when you get backed in the corner? Eventually you want to fight. Eventually, you're going to battle your way out. Eventually, you're going to try to come. And Paul knows that. He, he says, no, he knows. Okay, they're going to come with their questions. And because Paul is saying that you are not right with God just because you follow all the rules or all the rituals, it's like Paul's saying, you, you are not a baseball player just because you put the cleats on. You're not a baseball player just because you put the cleats and the pants and the hat. Paul, Paul's like, listen, you're not a Christian just because you go to church and just because you do this or just because you did that. That doesn't make you saved. And Paul's like, as you do that, and it's as they read this word, and they're in the corner, they're going to come out, and the way they're going to come out, they're going to come out with some objections, and they're going to come out with some questions, and they're going to be ready to fight. And Paul's saying that that covenant sign you love so much, it means nothing. God will raise up a Gentile nation to judge you. His covenant people and the Jews are like, that's a problem. You know you'd be ready to fight if you were in their, their shoes. When Paul says, listen, your Jewish heritage, it means nothing. And there's a whole new nation who are going to raise up and judge you. So in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul says, let me answer four questions or objections that you have that you're going to start throwing out anyway as you fight your way out of the corner. As we move in these eight verses, let me just tell you, some say this is one of the hardest sections of Scripture to understand in all the Bible. And we're going to try to tackle in about the next five minutes. So I encourage you to read and pray over this. Paul wants to call out what's under these objections, which is religious ritualism, hypocrisy, and it degrades the Bible, it degrades God and his character. Here's objection number one. It undermines God's covenant. Look at verses one and two. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Paul you are saying that God's covenant is worthless? You're telling me God made a covenant with the Jews and God sealed that with circumcision? And Paul, if you're right, and Gentiles are going to judge us Jews and people outside the family are going to be judged by people who aren't special, then we are either are special or not. Is that what your point you're making, Paul? So Paul, what's the point of circumcision? Why did God have us do us do that? And the same thing can be said today about the religious ritualist you are telling me that baptism doesn't save me, church attendance doesn't save me, serving church doesn't save me, helping the poor doesn't save me, then why am I doing it? What's the benefit? Look at what Paul says. Same response to both groups of people. To begin with, there's verse two, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What's the oracles? The message of God. They're entrusted here. You're entrusted with the message of the God. You think circumcision is about, about uh, security, about spiritual security. And he says, I know I can be right with God because I did. That's what you think it's about. Paul says, it's about privilege. You get to be entrusted with the oracles of God, he's talking to the Jews. You get to be entrusted with the word of God to carry it forth to nations, to Christians. Paul's saying you get to partner with the God of the universe and see him work in you and through you to affect change in the lives of people around you. That should blow your mind. Think about it for a moment. Look around this room at who's in this room. Just look around. Truth be told, God is using a whole bunch of knuckleheads (laughs) to bring forth his message. And he said, I will use you to partner with the God of the universe to bring the salvations of Jesus, his message to this earth. Now, so I'm not too harsh with you all the church. He looked at Brian Bolton and said... Dude, you're not the smartest crayon in the box. You're not. You, you ain't got it. You struggle through high school. You struggle through Bible college. Some of you know the story. You're fresh you Bible college. They make you take the book of Acts. I think it's the dumbest thing they do because you're 18 years old and all I want to do is play ping pong and go run around with my friends. I don't want to study the Bible. <clears throat> so I, I shouldn't tell you. No, let's not tell you that. I almost failed the book of Acts by the grace of the teacher, he gave me a passing grade because I think he wanted me out of his room. And God says, I'm partnering with you, Brian Bolton, to help bring the message of the gospel to this world. And he's partnering with you, and he's partnering with you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you who are online. And he says, I- I'm going to use people, and that should blow our mind. That's what Paul's telling him. Listen, that's God's plan. Objection number two, and this nullifies God's faithfulness. Verse three, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What is he talking about? The objector is saying, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Time out. <laughs> Let's back up here for a second, Paul. And Paul knows this objection's coming. That's why he's writing about it. What you are saying is God is going to judge the Jews the same way he would judge the, 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 the old Gentiles? We're going to fall underneath the same judgment? Yep. I thought God made a covenant with the Jews. I thought God cared about the Jews. I thought the Jews were God's very own special possession. Now you're telling me that God will judge them just like any else on the planet? Yep. If that happens, then how can we really trust God? He knows the argument. This that that seems like God is really unfaithful. The religionist ritualist might say, "I know that Jesus came to save. That's the heart of God." But you're telling me, I know somebody who's a really good person. I know like a grandma or an aunt or an uncle or or my bestest friend. They're a really good person and, and they're really spiritual. They've been catechized and 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 baptized, and, and every kind of eyes you can think of. But you're telling me, if they haven't surrendered to the heart of Jesus, if they haven't given their heart to Jesus, trusted God for His grace true faith, then they're under God's wrath? Yep. But Brian. Wait, but Paul. Wait, but God? Because that's who's telling us. You're telling me that even these good people... If they don't surrender to Jesus, they will perish. Yeah, look at Paul's response. Because they're saying it's not fair. That's what they're crying out. This isn't fair. Good people. Paul says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified by your words and prevail when you are judged. In other words, God is always faithful, He's always trustworthy. And he's always true. Say that word with me. God is always true. God, say it again. God is, God is always true. If you're online, type that in the comments. You, we need to believe that. We need to live that way, that God is always true. Who is judged in this passage? God and his character is judged. And he'll always be true. Here's what Paul is saying. You are upset because God is going to justly condemn people for their sin. Even though they have this stack or this list of things they say, God, look at me, look what I've done. And Paul says, even if... Even if God were to condemn every single person in this universe today and in the future and in the behind, and God were to condemn every single one of them, God could still do that and still be just because God bends over backwards to show us his grace so people could be saved. That's what God does. And a person who really understands this goes, wow, I get it. Wow, what a great God we have. Wow, this is amazing. And I don't deserve anything, but God has given me everything. Let me hit the last two objections quickly. Objection number three is this makes God unjust. Verse five, but if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, I speak in, in a human way. Paul says, I speak in human terms. Paul understands this objection is so silly and so ridiculous. Basically what they're saying is this, but Paul, Paul it's Paul is not just for God to judge me because my sin allows him to show his justice. So Paul, when I go out and I lie, I'm actually doing God a favor. Because when I lie, I'm giving God a chance to demonstrate his truthfulness, and then people see his truthfulness, and then that's awesome for God. And so this isn't fair. And Paul says, listen, you're missing the point still. But that's the argument. Like, okay, so my circumcision is no good, so then that just gives me the license to go ahead and sin because God's going to use my sinful life to point to other people, to point to his grace. We live like that sometimes. Well, I know I'm doing wrong, but I'll just receive God's grace, and I can just tell people, hey, God's grace took care of me. Paul says, this is nonsense. Look at verse 6. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? If that's the way God operated, you'd have to throw out judgment and wrath right out the window because God wouldn't be able to judge anybody. Paul says that's not the way because the fourth objection, it diminishes God's glory. Look at verse 7 and 8. But if through my life, through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. It's kind of like Paul saying, this is the last stop on the crazy train of thinking. God is going to get glory when I sin? Come on. His truth abounds. He gets glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner if he's going to get glory. And Paul's like, come on, get off your crazy cycle. Why not do evil so that good may come is what they're asking. Paul says, "What? why is such a thing bad? Well, they evolved. They evolved from saying, here's the ritual I hold on to that makes me right with God. And then when Paul says, that ritual doesn't work. Okay, Paul, then my ritual doesn't amount to anything in the presence of God. Well, that's not fair. And because that's not fair, then God gets the glory when I sin. So in the end, the, ju- the end justifies the means, don't they? And they flip the channel all the way from, I want to follow all the rules, so let me follow no rules so God will get the glory. And Paul's like, come on. And at the end of those objections, look what Paul says, verse 8, the second half of that. There, condemnation is just. When you buy into a religious ritual as a way to prop up yourself before a holy God and think it makes you acceptable to Him, without needing to bow before him and say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I am a sinner. Save me. There's not one thing I can do to be saved. That's the point Paul's bringing us to, that we're all in that crazy boat. Whether it be the moralist, whether it be the Gentile, whether it be the Jew, whether it be the religionist, whether it be the the ritualist, Our only answer, our only answer is to get down on our knees and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, save me. Lord, I can't do it on my own. Lord, I understand that I can try to be good, but it's meaningless. The Old Testament scripture says our goodness is like filthy rags. How are you living your life today? Are you living following the rules? Are you living on bending need? Saying, Lord, I surrender to you. Today I surrender to you. Tomorrow I surrender to you. Tuesday I surrender to you. Wednesday I surrender to you. Thursday I surrender to you. Friday I surrender to you. Saturday I surrender to you. Lord, I need you. That's the life of the believer. And when I fall and when I mess up, when I sin, I go to him and say, Lord, I've fallen, I've messed up, I need your forgiveness. 1 John nine tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you're willing and able, would you join me on your knees? you say the ground is hard, Brian. I know. I did this first service too. So I get I get double double knee damage, okay? If you're at home, you're on Facebook, join us on your knees right there in in your living room. Father God, we humbly bow before you. Lord, getting on our knees is a sign of submission. And Lord, we understand some people have knee issues or back issues and are not able. And so They're bowing their heads and their hearts the best they can to humbly submit to you. God, we are not bowing as a way to earn your right or earn your your, um, goodness or to show you our goodness. We are just bowing, Lord, as a way to say, I submit to Jesus. We are bowing saying, Lord, we need you. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness. We, We need the blood of Jesus to guide us. And Lord, blow up any thinking in us that, that leans towards the rules and the rituals and the religiosity that, that we all have in us at some, st- some, some bit. Help us, Lord, to walk in this life in the, in the posture of grace in the posture of being under the blood of Jesus in the posture of trusting Jesus for our salvation and nothing else. And may the things we do the Bible studies, the worship time, baptism, whatever it is, may we do that, Lord, because we love you. Transform our hearts so we love you and we honor you and we worship you out of a heart of love, not out of a heart of ritual. God, I want to pray for the person in this room or the people in this room or the people at our home who maybe haven't bowed and surrendered to Jesus and said, I need Jesus to be my Savior. I need to accept that blood or haven't done it in a long time and need to make that repentance, maybe this become a, a, a thing we do over and over in our life, Lord, that we'll just wake up in the morning and stop by the side of our bed and say, Lord, I bow to you today. Not because of ritual, but because we love you. Because we put you first. Father, maybe today someone will put Jesus first in their life. Let me just say to you today, if you want help with your journey with God, you want to submit to him, you want to follow him, we'd love to meet you at the cross Rex Hughes, one of our prayer team members back there, I'll be back there, and just talk about how do we help you to walk in a relationship with Jesus from where you are. Maybe your question's about baptism. I haven't done that. What does that look like? Maybe your question's about how do I put my faith in Jesus. We'd love to have conversation with you and help you in that journey. God, today we honor you and we praise you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. As you come back to your seat, Let me just say, God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Grace of his love perishes wrath. He gave us Jesus to take care of the wrath. you want to know more, we'd love to meet you at the cross. Need communion. Have I picked it up? It's in the back of the room. We invite you today as you partake in communion. As you take in communion, don't do it out of ritual. Do it out reflecting on his love and your love for him. Let's worship him through communion and song now. grace runs deep while I was a slave to sin Jesus died for me